a two-time winner of the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor, my guest Terry Fallis is the award-winning author of six national best-selling novels, including his latest, Albatross, a novel which is just recently in stores. Congratulations. That's an exciting time, right? It is. Thank you, Richard. Happy to be here. It's, it's a wonderful time when the book is finally launched because it seems to, the whole process seems to move in geological time. It sure does. It takes a very long time. And finally, uh, the day is here and the book is on the shelves and that's a, a thrill. Well, and you don't have to think about it anymore. You right. don't have to go out, did I use the semicolon the right <laughs> way on the third page or whatever it is? I, I once changed one of my books, like made a fairly major change between the second and third printing oh. of the book because I couldn't let it go. Right. I've since learned to let it go, but it, it, it's, it's tough. It's true. And I, I, I recorded the audiobook for this novel as well. And what I learned by recording the audiobook, because I have podcast my novels in yeah. the past, but for the first time I recorded the official audiobook yeah. with, and had a director I was working with. Uh-huh. And I learned that I don't actually read exactly what's on the page. I'm all subconsciously editing, even when I'm reading it off of the final uh, galleys. Well, do you read aloud anything that you write? I do. I Once I finish writing a, a chapter or writing something, I will go back and I'll read it aloud. And I find that I make... It changes galore while I'm doing that. I completely agree. I do that as well. That's what the lesson of podcasting, mm-hmm. uh, that's what's what it's taught me, is that sentences that seem beautiful and flowing and pristine when you, when you write them, when you read them, they often are a little clunkier than you think they are. And, yeah, and uh, I always think that if your tongue trips over it, your eye will too, eventually. Quite agree. Yeah, or reader's eye will. Um, so uh, Albatross is an interesting novel set in the world of golf, but not really. I mean, it's not about golf so much. It's I'm glad about you said success. That. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. It isn't, it is, it's a novel about life, I think. Mm-hmm. Golf just happened to be the vehicle I chose. I could have chosen anything, I right. think, to tell yeah. the same kind of story. Yeah, because if you hear it's a golf novel, you don't really understand that while it's specific in its topic uh, or in its setting, uh, it is very universal in yes. the themes that it presents. Yes, yeah, exactly. I, I think of it as a, a funny novel that explores life goals that we all share, I think, and that is for success Mm -hmm. and happiness. And in particular, this novel examines the tension that often exists between success and happiness. Well, for me, my takeaway from it was that it really examines what happens when you get success and you don't feel you really deserve it. Right. So what ends up happening in this movie, or in this movie... Let's hope it's a movie, Yeah, let's hope it's a movie. We'll (laughs) knock wood. Uh, What happens in the novel, uh, essentially, is that a young man uh, just has a gift. He's got a gift. He's able to play golf, and he becomes very good. He becomes renowned for playing golf. But he doesn't respect it because he's good at it. Right. And and he is Naturally. essentially a, an empty but perfect vessel mm-hmm. for golf. Uh, and he's so naturally attuned. His body is so perfectly proportioned for it that, in fact, if he practices, he gets worse. Yeah. If he thinks about it, yeah. he gets worse. He has to rely simply on his perfect body, and it tells him what to do in a way. So I tried to create sort of an extreme example where he has literally no agency over his Mm. virtuosity at this game. As I was reading the book, 
I watched the the movie David Crosby uh, Remember My Name. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. It's fantastic. Oh, good. And it this story kind of reminded me of the life story of David Crosby in the sense that uh, David Crosby opens his mouth and this beautiful sound comes out, this unbelievable voice, one of the great, you know, voices of the 1960s oh, yeah. and 70s. Uh, but he got famous when he was 18 or 19 years old on the birds, and he never respected it. Yes, you utterly know? ill-equipped to deal with it. Absolutely. And it just came so naturally to him. You're, you're quite right. There are some similarities there, except for the drug-fueled incarceration that <laughs> happened right. later in his that, life. That was 30 but, years later. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. But, uh, but I, 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 I saw the, the, the correlation there. What was it that sort of pushed you towards the story? What was the inspiration? Well, I, I think I've uh, – well, partly my own, my own career maybe has been an inspiration <laughs> uh, in that – and I think this has happened to a lot of people. You, you, you know, finish your schooling, whatever it might have been, and you fall into a career mm. that is perhaps unexpected. Uh, and for me, I, I, I got a – I have an engineering degree, but I never practiced engineering. I, I fell into a life in politics in the early years of my career, which I, I loved, but it takes a lot out of you, right. as you can imagine. Well, you're on the clock 24 hours a yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. And I learned so much, and it gave me enough fodder for my first two novels. Uh, but uh, back then, I, I was so exhausted from that that I, I became a communications and public affairs consultant. I that, I'd never had that as a goal or a dream in my life, and, and it turned out... I. I think I was pretty good at it, and by all the standard measures of success, you're being promoted, you're being headhunted, you're being given more responsibility, you're giving raises, and by all those standard measures of success, you are doing well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I liked it. In fact, I thought I, I loved it. And I've spent the last 30 years as a communications consultant, and I am still a communications consultant, now four days a week, so I can afford to be a Canadian novelist on the fifth day. <laughs> well, th that's, the, that's the thing. I mean, perhaps one of the, the, the earmarks of your success is that you found outlets that are like release valves or something like that. Right. And so while you're doing the communications work, which it's your own company, I mean, right. you, 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 you've been very successful at it. I think you're underplaying that a little bit. You've been very <laughs> successful at it. Uh, but you have. You've written six or seven books. Seven now. Seven yeah. books now with Albatross. Right. And, and that is uh, – it has to be some kind of – pressure valve. Because it, it you don't just write on Friday. Like you don't no, work no, no. Monday to Thursday and go, okay, Friday is my writing day. No, no, not yeah. at all. Uh, I wish it were that simple. No, it's not <laughs> like that. Uh, and I've really enjoyed my career. But when I wrote my first novel, uh, I remember as I finished it, before I even started the, the process of publishing, which was a strange process for my, in my first novel, as you may recall. Yeah, but, we'll, we'll talk about oh, sure, this okay. a little bit because I think there's a real lesson to be learned here uh, for people. There's a lot of people that will be listening here uh, and they'll want to know because uh, they've written a book. They want to get it out. Right. They don't know how. And I think your story has a, a, a lot of uh, uh, directions that we can point in right. that are very interesting for new writers. Good. So I, I wrote that. And when I finished it, even before I started the, the, the process of trying to find a publisher, uh, I remember thinking to myself, and it was kind of a, a bit of an epiphany, I said, oh, this is what it's like to really love what you do. 
And I thought I'd had that before, and I, I really enjoyed my career, and I still do. But uh, I just felt like I'd stumbled upon. Oh, geez! Now that now I know, this is what I I really love to do. And that separation of happiness and success, because I I like to think I've been quite successful mm-hmm. in in my career. I thought it was an interesting topic uh, to explore in a novel, and I suspect. Having a, a large circle of friends uh, as a as a test case, that there are lots of other people out there who have been quite successful in their professions. Maybe they're lawyers, maybe yep. they're physicians, uh, whatever they might be, and have done so well. But don't wake up on a Monday morning and think, oh, I can hardly wait to get into whatever my my day job is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably very common. I think you start a career with a great deal of passion. Yes. Usually speaking. I hope so anyway. Of course. And then uh, after a number of years, it starts to kind of peter out or, or, or it just becomes a job rather than a vocation for you right. or, or an avocation for you. Yeah, I think that's right. And sometimes it's, it's your sense of curiosity as you start a new job. It's all new and exciting and it's interesting. You're learning all the time. And then when you've gone through that cycle a few times, uh, that the fascination or the novelty of it perhaps wears off and we get a little bored maybe. Yeah. And I think in terms of, of writing a new book all the time, because your books are all uh, I mean, there's there, there's a thread that goes to them. Mm. They're funny and they think, but they're also uh, different. Each right. book is quite different, and I do think that the only way forward to keep yourself alive and engaged and interested and all that stuff is to constantly be challenging yourself. If you find yourself sitting back on your laurels, you've got a bunch of Stephen Leacock awards for medal or medals <laughs> for humor and that sort of thing, you know, that kind of thing can make you complacent. And when you get complacent, that's when the withering starts. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, I exist with a, uh, a in a constant state of self-doubt, Richard. Yep. So, and, so, and that's a good thing to be in when you're a writer because it, you never take the easy way. You yep. always try and uh, and explore every avenue before you decide on something uh, and I I've never liked a f- that feeling of being overly confident frankly I've never really had that feeling <laughs> so so it's uh, I think that keeps me on my toes and and I try to explore something new in in each novel it's funny I think the, the novels are all different and they're all all the same in a way because well, your voice. The vo- yeah, that, that's it. I think yeah. the voice is is similar across them all. Uh, but uh, but I like to examine different issues. Yeah, I think of it as imposter syndrome rather <laughs> yeah. than than self doubt. This imposter syndrome that you know every time I, I I write something, whether it's an article or a book or a review or something, I always think. This is the one where they're going to find out that I'm a fraud. That's right. I keep looking over my shoulder. (laughs) I I feel exactly the same way. I think that's what keeps us on our toes, though, and uh, and keeps us working hard uh, because we never assume that we can do this or that we have uh, the ability or the right to do it. Yes. If you can do it again. uh, You know, Guillermo del Toro told me one time he was in here talking and he said every time he's on a movie set, he assumes it's going to be his last time on a movie (laughs) set because he doesn't know if he can do it again. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good way to be. Uh, and you're right, those who who sort of become complacent and overconfident and do not know what they do not know, <laughs> uh, 
then uh, they, I think they begin to falter and they can't quite figure out why. So luckily, uh, I, I tend to be quite self-deprecating because I have so much about which to be self-deprecating, <laughs> I think. So uh, it's a good way to be for a writer, I think. In a lot of ways, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit in the, in the first segment, but, you know, you said that uh, essentially this story of, uh, uh, of Albatross it was, was inspired a little bit by your own, you know, sort of forging your own destiny in uh, in creating a, a new path for yourself, you studied engineering. Did you ever work as an engineer? I've never worked. Well, I've never worked formally as an engineer, right. but I like to think my entire approach to almost everything I have ever done uh, is through an engineer's lens, and I think like an engineer. Uh, I've just never practiced practiced it professionally. Does that mean when you're sitting down to write a book that you sketch it out and you are very disciplined in the way that you approach the work? In a, to a very extreme degree. <laughs> really? Yeah, really? I am. Uh, if it takes me 18 months to write a novel, I'm not writing complete sentences until the last four months of weekends in that process. And how is this possible? What, so what does that mean? Well, it means that I, I develop. A a rather detailed blueprint. I have sort of developed a, an approach to writing a novel that, that works for me. Uh, and that means I have a germ of, a, of an idea for a story. It sort of steeps and ferments in my mind uh, <laughs> as I walk to and from my, my day job. Uh, and the characters emerge. I begin to map out the story in a, in a timeline. And then I develop a chapter map where I kind of plot out where things will go. And ultimately, it results in an 80 or 90 page chapter-by-chapter bullet-point outline of the novel. And then in the last four months of weekends, I put that 90-page bullet-point outline on one side of my computer monitor and the manuscript on the other side, and I write the 100,000-word manuscript almost in in a sprint. That's interesting. I've never heard of that. I, I, I know that a lot of people have told me, of course, I know where the book's going. Not everybody does when they start, but right. the, most people have a beginning and an end, and then they figure out the middle you know, as they're going exactly. through. Uh, Douglas Copeland told me one time that it's like his characters sit on his shoulder and whisper their dialogue into his <laughs> ear, that right. kind of thing. It's true. Uh, but uh, in this case, uh, I've never heard anyone being that exacting about it. Yeah, it's uh, it seems far less sort of uh, art. Artistic, like I wait for the muse to strike me and I channel these ethereal voices. That's not how it works for me. Listen, if I think if you wait for the muse to strike, you're going to be waiting a very <laughs> long, long time. time. Precisely. So I, I'm much. It feels much more like a, I'm engineering a novel. I'm building it. I'm developing a blueprint for it, and I, I like that process for me because when I get to writing the manuscript, I'm not worried about what my character is going to do one paragraph later. Right. Uh, I can commit all of my questionable cerebral powers on the craft of, of uh, forming sentences. Yeah, putting and the words together. That I, and I really want the words to work well, and I don't want to be having part of my brain worried about what my you know, uh, narrator is going to do next or the, the, uh, and the, you know, the bad guy in the story is going to do next. I just worry about the sentences at that stage, and that's kind of liberating for me. Interesting to, to uh, use that approach, because for me, it it is uh, perfectly sensible in that people think 
that you do have these lightning bolts of inspiration. And sometimes it does happen. Sometimes you do get these lightning. I'll wake up in a whole chapter or paragraph or whatever. The thing I've been thinking about is just fully formed in my head and it's time to get it out there. Uh, But most times it's just work. It is work. Uh, It is work. And it helps if you love it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you love it, then it actually isn't work. I know academically it is work. And uh, but it doesn't feel like you're doing work when you're in the throes of it. And I think that's the, the power of the creative process. It does kind of grab you when it's, when it's your process. Uh, and I, I enjoy that. And we were talking just before uh, we turned on the microphones that you know, it's a very exciting day when you, you write a book and you spend 18 months on it or whatever it is. And then the box of books arrives. Oh, yeah. So they send over 20 or 25 copies and you get the box. And that's a very exciting day. And there's nothing quite like it. I remember when it happened for my very first novel, uh, which the first time around was was self-published. Mm-hmm. But I remember the box arrived in my office and I, I closed my door so I wouldn't be interrupted. And I sat down and I opened the box and I, I quite consciously closed my eyes when I reached in because I didn't want to see them all, right. you know, with the, you know, maybe they were upside down, maybe they right, were right, stacked right. away that... Maybe they spelled I, your name wrong. Right. <laughs> I, I wanted to pull it out and hold it in my in my hands and then open my eyes and look at it. And I have a very vivid memory yeah. of, of that day and how how fulfilling uh, it, it was. I remember the, the first day that the box arrived for me, my first book, and I couldn't open the box. I sat there and I knew what it was. <laughs> I knew what it was and I sat there and I just stared at it because once I opened the box, the dream is done. Right. I had My entire life, I'd wanted a book with my name on the spine. And when that there happened... You know, opening that box was was going to mean something. It was going to be a very significant moment. Right. And eventually, of course, I opened it and I remember looking at the book and going, "My wow, it's so cool!" And as I, I love having this, I put it on the shelf. I had to look at it, and then I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah. now I got to write another one." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it's the beginning. It's the end of something and the beginning of the next thing. Quite right. <laughs> so you self published on the first one, and you've had some interesting things to talk about uh, in terms of of self publishing. I mean, it worked for you. Yes. Your, your first book in conjunction with, you know, new media and podcasting and that sort of thing right. over the course of your first number of books, the first one was the only one self-published, right? And Correct. Then, then after that, uh, you, you started to go with publishers, but you used podcasting and, and I guess your background in communications to figure out how to get the word out, but you don't love self-publishing. Well, I, I it certainly worked for me. I, the only thing I don't love about it is that I think... Too often people say, well, that guy self-published and it worked for him. And I wouldn't want it to give false hope to anybody because it wasn't so much the self-publishing that changed the course of my life as a writer. It was the lottery win of having having, uh, won the Stephen Leacock medal with that self-published novel. Uh, I realized I couldn't have done that had I not self-published, but... Uh, without the Stephen Leacock medal, I might still be selling those uh, those novels out of the back of my car. Yeah, 500 uh, copies here and right, there. Right. So it certainly worked for me. I think I pursued that path almost out of naivete. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. It was my first novel. I'd spent a year sending it out to publishers and literary agents. And after 12 months of doing that, I hadn't even received a single automated rejection letter. (laughs) So uh, what I didn't realize, because I just didn't know that world, is that that's not unusual. So many movies that I've been watching recently uh, have been about this. I think we have come through an age of cynicism, and we are now into people creating art that uplifts 
And I think it's really necessary right now. Well, I, and you can count on me for a novel that uh, <laughs> that has a happy ending. I'm not very good at the at the dark and the uh, and the angst ridden. Although there are certainly dark scenes in in the novel, but uh, yeah, I, I, you may be right. There's lots of uh, in in culture out there today. Yeah. There's lots of, of uplifting stuff, and maybe it's the power of social media and the great little video clips that pass through our Facebook stream that are so uplifting. I saw one yesterday that almost brought a tear to my eye. It was a lacrosse, uh, Israeli lacrosse team uh, playing the Kenyan lacrosse team, and the Kenyan team were slipping and sliding because they didn't have cleats, and the Israeli uh, players uh, arranged to get cleats for all the, the Kenyan players, and it was just a, it was just what you want the right. world to be about. Uh, so I hope we're having a moment for that kind of, of story uh, again, because uh, I think we need more of that in this day and age. We were talking about self-publishing, and so you, you send your, your book around, you're, you've self-published it, but you don't even get a, a response from anybody. No. There's nothing. No, no. Uh, so I, when I didn't hear from any mainstream publishers or, or any publishers, <laughs> small or large, or the person who runs a, a you know a, an HP printer in his basement, I heard from nobody. Uh, it didn't seem to me that I was likely to get a, 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 res a different response if I waited another six months. Right. Although, you know, now that I've learned a bit about the publishing world, the slush piles in literary agents' offices and publishers' offices are are quite high. And it's quite possible no one actually ever mm -hmm. looked at my first uh, manuscript that I sent out. And so it wasn't necessarily a sign of rejection. A rejection letter might have been, but I didn't get any of yeah. those. So anyway, I, I naively, uh, innocently went ahead with the self-publishing process. And uh, I think it can work for, for many people, particularly if you're writing a, a self-help book or you're a, a speaker on the conference mm -hmm. circuit in the business world. Because you've got an outlet to sell your books exactly. as well. If you're if you're touring around and speaking at conventions and things, there's a table out front that's going to sell your book, so you've got a built-in audience. And if you self-publish it, you're getting a, a much higher return yeah. on those book sales than you would be if you're with a mainstream publisher. But so, but the the downside though that I've heard you talk about is that people look at you and go, "Oh, you self-published." Well, oh, there, you, you, could you not get a, a, yeah. an actual book deal? Well, rightly or wrongly, there there does remain a stigma around self-published works. And I think one of the problems is that self-publishing has become so easy now. The barriers to self-publishing have, have fallen almost completely. And if you've got 500 bucks in your pocket, one week later, you can be holding your book. Yeah. It's so easy that I think... Sometimes in the rush to hold the book in your hand, your manuscript isn't quite at the place where it ought to be or where it could be. The cover design you've done, you've done yourself, and maybe you like it, but you're not exactly a graphic designer. Clip art. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So <laughs> it's just so easy now that I, I fear that people are rushing to it, and they're not giving the art itself, yeah. the, the words uh, in, the, in the book, uh, it's their due uh, reverence or their due mm -hmm. uh, what they are due yeah. before they, they actually put it out there. Well, the, the art of writing really is in the rewriting. Yes. And that's for me the the time that takes the time. I can I can barf out a book fairly quickly. Right. Uh, but then it's the it's the work that comes after that. Yes. Uh, that that really is the see now my, my books are a little different. They're all nonfiction. Uh, so they rely on interviews and that kind of thing. So right. they are constantly in a state of flux. If I get another interview that works better in the first 
part. I, I'm constantly rearranging right. things, but I'm constantly rewriting right up until the second they rip it out of my hands. Yes, I, I, I quite agree. That's what happens, and and it's nice to have an e- and you have an editor. I I have an editor, uh, sometimes more than one, a copy yeah. editor too. Yeah, and uh, and they make your book better. And when you're self-published, uh, if you are going to go down the self-publishing path, and uh, you know, I I think it's certainly uh, an option to be considered by by writers who are trying to break through. Uh, if you can simulate or create the conditions that you might have if you were with a traditional publishing mm-hmm. house. In other words, if you're going to pay for a self-published book, pay a little more and hire an editor yeah, to work with you. It is an extra expense, yes. but it is, uh, it's, it's a crucial one. What do you want people to take away from reading Albatross? Well, in a way, I think of it as a, as a fable, and fables have a, a moral. Mm-hmm. And if you read this uh, this sort of an extreme story, it presents an extreme scenario to allow us to consider a problem that, or an issue that we might be facing in our own lives at a different to a different degree. Uh, so, I think to me, the mor- moral of the story is: uh, if we know what makes us happy. We need to figure out a way to integrate that into our lives. Maybe it can't be our career, but we better find a way to bring it into our lives uh, because uh, we we should be happy. We deserve to be happy, uh, and we have the power to make ourselves happy. Is that a perspective that has come to you with age? Would you have realized that at 20 years old? No, I don't think so, because yeah. I think when we're, when we're very young, uh, we probably equate success with happiness. Well, you got stuff. We've got you stuff. You have things. Right. You have a, I can get a car, and I look at that watch I just bought. We yeah. have a job. We're getting yeah. a paycheck, and we're in love with the paycheck, because mm-hmm. uh, it's easier to be in love with a paycheck than it is to be in, lo- in love with what, in, what it is, in fact, we're doing. Yeah. Uh, I think as you get older and you, you live a little and you experience some of life's ups and downs, uh, we come to be able to discern what separates success from happiness. Yeah, and it, I, I think it can be very difficult for a long time to figure out what that is because, you know, the idea is that we all want to be successful. Everyone right. wants to to be able to say, I am a success. Look at me. Right. And with that comes, you know, you would think if you're successful, then you can have a bigger house or you can have whatever everybody else has. But that's not necessarily true. I mean, I think that success comes in all kinds of forms and it doesn't necessarily have to come with all the the extraneous stuff. Sometimes you can be successful and the paycheck doesn't reflect it. Absolutely. And certainly if you are a a writer, uh, you won't need us to tell you that (laughs) that financial success is seldom uh, reflected in the personal fulfillment that comes with writing a piece of art that people enjoy and and are reading. Even if it sells really well in in Canada, that doesn't mean that those writers are living above the poverty line. Oh, you're a thousandaire. If it (laughs) sells really well, you're a thousandaire. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, in terms of of that selling books and everyone wants them to be out there, what what I always think about is that if I, when I write this thing, when it goes out there, 20 years from now, someone can pick pick it up at the library and read it. An article is a slightly different thing. They sort of, they come and go. But uh, a book is going to be there for a very long time. So you want it to be right. I, I couldn't agree more. And there is, so there's something about having that number of books that you've yeah. written on your shelf and say, this is what I'm leaving the world. Yeah, yeah. And, and it does have some staying power. Yeah, it does. It does. And rightly or wrongly, I mean, I sometimes think that you can overthink that a yes. little bit and, and, it, and it leads to being, you know, sort of paralyzed almost. Yes. Uh, but you have to uh, manage somehow to talk your way over that and just say, I've done this before. 
I can do it again because I believe that it's a muscle. And the more you use it in terms of writing, the bigger the, the writing muscle gets. Yeah, without question. Uh, it's like almost anything else. You have to, to practice to have it uh, to get better and yeah. to stay in shape and to knock the rust off it when you haven't done it for a while. And you say that you you know, will write in four months of weekends. Do you write? Do you come home and write at all, or like how does it work for well, you? There is that that age old, you know, axiom: a writer must write every mm-hmm. day. You must write every day. And I, I confess, I do not write every yeah. day. I, I cannot. I have broadened the definition of the word writing for me. So writing for me includes thinking through my story for hours on end, where it's going, maybe jotting some notes down that are right. hardly writing. It's just little points to remind me of things, and that's what keeps me on track, but that's what I call writing for me. Mm -hmm. It's set in and around the world of golf, but it doesn't mean that it's a golf novel. It is a story that I think could easily be uh, kind of like one of Aesop's uh, fables. It it, <laughs> it, it, it has a, a broader meaning outside of the setting. Well, nice of you to put me in the same sentence with that bestseller Aesop. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love his work. I, I love his later work. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about some of your favorite uh, stuff. What was your biggest influence in terms of, of writing? Uh, you know, you studied engineering. Uh, you work in communications. But, you know, the idea to become a writer just didn't pop into your head after all of that. It must have been planted there earlier on in life? Well, I think it started with my my father. Uh, He was a a pediatric surgeon, but was a great grammarian. And he instilled in all of his offspring a reverence for the English language and its proper usage. And I think that was the earliest stage of my set me on the path perhaps mm-hmm. one day to uh, to write because uh, I do love language and I love sentences that are, are beautiful and flowing. Uh, I didn't read much fiction until I was in my late 20s, believe it or not, oh. which is unusual perhaps for a, a for novelist. novelist yeah. uh, but I was that was when my life was all about politics. So I was reading biography and political science and history mm-hmm. and even economics, if you can imagine. Um, and I realized one day in my mid to late 20s that I had this gaping void in my cultural understanding. <laughs> and I decided to read novels and it was as if the, you know, the veil fell and uh, and I could see what I had been missing. And I, I latched onto novels that made me laugh. I read you know, Robertson Davies mm-hmm. and, and Mordecai Richler and then I discovered John Irving. Yeah, now John, who plays a, a role in in Albatross as well. So, what was it about John Irving? I loved those books as well. Yeah, uh, because for me, that was a gateway into literature that, as you say, made me laugh. And and up until that point, I'm not sure that I really understood that it was okay to laugh at literature or to right. find funny literature or, or a book that could be called literature and yet would, you know, make you giggle. Right. And I, I John Irving is my mentor. Uh, he doesn't know that, but, <laughs> but I think of him as my mentor. Yeah. And in particular, he, he taught me the power of juxtaposing humor and pathos mm-hmm. and sometimes rubbing them right up against one another so that you could be laughing yourself silly on one paragraph and... 
the next paragraph, you are laid low and have a lump in your throat the size of a tennis ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was very good at that. And it struck me uh, when I was reading those early novels, particularly A Prayer for Owen Meany, uh, what, a, what an extraordinary ride it is for the reader when you can be brought up to the heights of glee and then back down into the trough of, of sadness where your heart is, is gripped. Uh, and I've just never lost sight of that of that message and how that made me feel when I was reading his books. You also loved Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do. I've read Sherlock Holmes for a long time. I often read Sherlock Holmes when I'm actually uh, plotting a novel and, and, and writing it, because if I'm reading other novels, I have this fear, misplaced though it may be, that characters in the novel that I'm reading uh, might slip into my own, my own writing. Right. But I know the Sherlock Holmes stories so well, I've read the canon over and over, uh, that that's never a fear, yet I always marvel at the way Conan Doyle writes his sentences. I love his sentences. And I come from the school of writing of why use six words when 12 will do school of writing. I I am not one for paring down my language unduly. I like to splash around in the language. And so does Conan Doyle. I love Truman Capote. There's uh, Truman Capote uh, never wrote a sentence that wasn't beautiful. Yes, uh, and it was just a gift. I, I don't think he even knew that it was a gift. I don't think he even worked that hard I, at it. I, I'm not sure. I, I I don't know. I've read various things about the way that he wrote, and I do know that the last book, Music for Chameleons, which was unfinished yes. when it was published, uh, it doesn't have the quality that his other books did. So I'm guessing that there was more to it than I think maybe the idea that this bon vivant writer who just could bang out Spew these amazing out. Yeah. these amazing uh, words and you know uh, and and sentences uh, worked a little harder at it than we than we might you imagine. might be right there's a great biography of Capote by Gerald Clark I think his name is and uh, yeah it, it's if you like books about writers it's a great one it's quite don't maybe 25 years old now but it's a wonderful book but Capote wrote his favorite place to write was lying down down in bed. Yeah, yeah. He wrote in bed. I, I couldn't do that. No, I'm not, that's it, what made me think it must have come easily for him because he's just lounging in his bed. Right. Or perhaps it was so exhausting that he <laughs> yeah, had to for, lay in the oh, bed to do it. You see? Hadn't thought of that. Quite right. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, what was it? I mean, was it just the, the, the beauty of the language? Was it the, the intricately plotted stories? Was it the villains? What was it exactly? It's almost all of those things. It was the language, uh, principally. I loved the way uh, Conan Doyle told the stories. I also loved the characters. I mean, Sherlock Holmes is a very compelling character, but he's not all that likable yeah, in, yeah. in many yeah. in many senses of the arrogant, word. Uh, he's arrogant. He's arrogant. Know it all. Yeah. He was a drug addict. <laughs> he was intolerant of those who were uh, not quite up to his yeah, intellectual yeah. acumen. But he also did have a an interesting. Uh, gift for friendship, though he he abused it now and then. But John Watson and that relationship between Watson and Holmes is a very special one. And it, it's possible as I sift through my own writing in hindsight that the tendency in my novels to have uh, a narrator and another character who play off one another often throughout the whole story, it makes me wonder whether the seeds for that approach were sown in my love for Sherlock Holmes and, and John Watson. 
Now, I think I know the answer to this, but you hate The Sun Also Rises, Ernest Hemingway's <laughs> first novel. And, you know, Ernest Hemingway was someone who, who pared down, pared down. Uh, sentences are, there's three word sentences that he has in his, well, that's probably not true, but there are <laughs> there very are. short sentences. Uh, and you don't like that. Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, I am, it's strange. I have read almost every biography there is about Ernest Hemingway. I am fascinated by his life as, yeah. a, as a literary titan who strode across the landscape <laughs> in the last uh, in the last century. I'm fascinated by him. Even some of us said I've been obsessed by him. But the one thing I have not done is read a lot of Hemingway because I, I stopped after I, I saw the way he wrote. And I'm just not a fan of how he writes. I realize he revolutionized writing, yep. changed literature, and I'm I'm grateful for that. But as I said, as someone who likes to splash around in the English language, Hemingway, to me, uh, not to many others, but to me, almost rips all the interest out of the sentence and the language to get it pared down to such simple prose. And I'm just I'm just not a fan of the writing, though I'm fascinated by him. Yeah, I like the writing. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it, right. although I find that I don't go back to it very often. Mm. You know, I read all that stuff years ago and probably a few times I've read, you know, some of those books. And I think that when I was first starting to write, I wanted to learn how to be a bit more economical. So I'd go back and I'd have a look at those, especially when writing for newspapers and that kind of thing. I wanted to learn, you know, how do you write a three word sentence? How right. do you do it? Yes. And, and, but I, I don't, I don't go back and read them for pleasure very often. Yes. And part of reading the pleasure for me is the language itself. And I think for Hemingway, the pleasure maybe is rooted in, in the story and the characters yeah. and the questions he's examining. And he wants the writing not to get in the way at all. Uh, and I, I respect that. It just isn't my own choice, uh, my own my own preference. But he is quite uh, – what an interesting figure he, he was. What is something that you've always wanted to write about? Ah, <sighs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I haven't written anything – about music, uh, I I have I have been a guitar player, singer, songwriter uh, in the privacy of my own home, yeah. and occasionally out there uh, once in a while. But music has been a huge part of my life, uh, writing songs and playing in bands. And uh, you may know the band Sky, the Sky Diggers. Yeah. Uh, well, Andy Mays was the singer in our band oh, at university. We gave him his amazing. start. Wow, wow, we wow. gave him his start in the music business. That's what I like to say. <laughs> but And I've write, written about a lot of aspects of my own life, not autobiographically, but I know those worlds. Yeah. So I, I create a story a, that allows me to uh, to write about them uh, without being in the story. But I haven't yet written about uh, the life of a, of a songwriter, a singer, a musician. And it may be one of those things that, that'll happen. I haven't got plans for it. It's not, it's not my, in my next novel, but uh, it is something that uh, I've, uh, it has occurred to me that I've not written about that part yet of my, my life. And are you working on something right now? Uh, I am. Uh, it sort of never stops. Mm -hmm. You, if you, I worry that if I if I'm not working on something, it might just stop. Yeah, so right. I, so I do keep going. And uh, one of the questions I, I get almost at every reading I do in the last ten years is, are we going to see a return of? ever a return of Angus McClintock, mm -hmm. who was the accidental member of parliament in my first two novels. And uh, the short answer is, I think we will be seeing Angus again. Wow. 
that's the the trilogy. Yeah, well, it might it's be. A, yeah, exactly. This is it's the new Hunger Games. It's the new Harry <laughs> Potter. Yeah. It's oh, the... <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Well, I haven't written about him for well for ten or twelve years, I guess yep. now. Uh, and he was a, a great character in my in my early part of my writing life, and I wanted to get away from him to see if I could write something else. And I wrote you know another five novels. So I, I think I can go back now, having exorcised him from my my and, and writing. Different perspective, well, probably. Yes, and it's not going to be a story that is rooted at, as rooted in politics as the first two. He's going to he and his sidekick Daniel are going to stumble into sort of an international plot and have to uh, you know have to figure out how to how to save the day. So uh, I'm having fun uh, mapping it out and thinking it through. Terry, thanks so much. Richard, thanks for having me. It's been wonderful to be here. Thank you. My guest in studio has been Terry Follis. The new book is called Albatross, a novel available wherever you buy fine books. Uh, My thanks to you for listening, and my thanks to Joey on the board. We'll talk again next week.